Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to have you with us today. And man, it's already been a great morning here, and it's actually been a great weekend. Many of you know that from Friday at noon through Saturday at noon, we had 24 hours of continuous prayer here in this building. We had over 100 people sign up for a 30-minute time slot. All of those time slots were filled. And if you were a part of this, uh, you know it was a powerful experience. Uh, everyone uh, just got to move throughout the building to different stations and just pray, lift up requests to God. And I want to thank all of you who came and participated, and I also want to thank Jared and his team of volunteers for putting that together. Uh, man, here at the beginning of 2023, prayer is so important. Uh, here at Plum Creek, we've said that prayer is going to be a key theme for us. And it's got to be that way because everything we do, everything we are depends on him. And with that in mind, I have one more prayer request for you. Uh, I'm asking that you would pray for me right now. And I'll tell you why. I am intimidated by the sermon that I'm about to preach here. I'm going to be speaking about God. And yeah, some of you are thinking... Don't you do that every week? And to some extent, that's true. But today is a little different. The purpose of this sermon is to paint a picture of God himself, the most high God. And that's intimidating to me because I'm just human and I'm trying to describe someone who is indescribable. And I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to be inaccurate. I don't want to be misleading in any way. So seriously, please pray for me while I'm preaching. And I want to pause and do that right now. Lord, uh, this is beyond me. Uh, I am flawed. My, uh, my thoughts are, are not your thoughts. Uh, so I, I want to lean on your word today. I pray that you would speak through your word. I'm asking that I, you become greater, I become less. And I pray that we will not just know more about you today, but that we will know you better today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a big day around here. We are starting a journey that will take us through the entire Bible from God's perspective. We're going to tell God's kingdom story from now through the month of April. We're going to go from creation to Christ. And this is the most important story in the world. And the best part is, it's true. Over the next four weeks, we'll, we'll start by looking at the beginning. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the early part of the book of Genesis. But now today, we're going to begin before the beginning. Uh, you better hold on here, because we're about to stretch our minds beyond our ability we're trying to answer the biggest question in life. Who is God? And we need to answer this question based on the truth of God's word. When I preach, I usually like to focus on one main passage, but I'll give you a heads up. Today, we're going to be all over the Bible. Uh, I want to give you the big picture because I don't want us to walk away with uh, some inferior, simplistic, two-dimensional view of God. Now, the first answer to this big question uh, comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. 
In this passage, uh, God sends Moses down to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. Now, Moses is, is a little freaked out by this task, understandably, and, and he says, now, now hold on. What if I go down there and they're like, oh, you say God sent you, huh? Which God are you talking about? What's his name? And then in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So that's the first answer to our question. Who is God? God is I am. It's kind of a strange name, and there's a lot we could say about this, but let's just look at the basic truth. What does God mean when he says, I am who I am? Well, at the very least, that means we don't get to decide who God is. He just is who he is. You, you might say that God doesn't exist. You might say that he is not, but your words don't change a thing. God is. He says, I am. You could also invent some version of God that you happen to like, but your imaginary made-up version doesn't change the reality. He says, I am who I am. Whatever theories or opinions we have about God, they have no bearing on his true identity. And we need to be humble here because, like I said, we're, we're just human beings. And by definition, it's impossible for us to grasp the greatness of God. But I'll tell you what, if we're able to get just a glimpse of his greatness, it will blow you away. That happens to me sometimes when I read scripture. Uh, for instance, several years ago, I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, I'll read this for you. The Apostle Paul is writing here, and he says that God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This verse is amazing on several levels. Here's one level. Long before God created the universe, he already knew how history would play out. He knew that he would create the human race, that we would be sinful and rebellious, and that we would deserve eternal punishment. But he also knew that he would love us too much to be separated from us forever. He knew that he would send Jesus as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sin. He knew that he would make it possible for us to be with him forever. He already knew all of that from the beginning. Which means God knew you from the beginning. You ever think about that? Before there was a universe, God knew you. That's an amazing thought. It's already enough to blow you away. But uh, let's try to wrap our brains around the last five words of this verse. Before the beginning of time. Uh, the more you wrestle with that concept, the more you realize it's absolutely bonkers. So let's try to think about this. If God existed before the beginning of time, it's logical to think that he created time itself. 
But now, if, if God exists outside of time, how does he experience the phenomenon that we call the present? <laughs> this is so difficult for us to comprehend because we're trapped here in this present moment as we move along the timeline of history. We can't fast forward to the future. We can't rewind to the past. But what if God is not like that? What if he's not trapped in the present? What would that even be like? The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about this, but uh, the writer C.S. Lewis, he came up with an interesting theory that I'll share with you. Lewis compared God to an author of a book. He said it this way. He said, think about it. I could write a novel with a character named Mary. And let's say in the story, Mary is at home working. And all of a sudden, she hears a knock at the door. She leaves her work and goes to answer the door. Now, Mary lives in the imaginary timeline of my story. For her, there's no interval between leaving her work and going to the door. But I, who am Mary's maker, do not live in that imaginary time at all. Between writing the first half of that sentence and the second, I might sit down for three hours and think steadily about Mary. I could think about Mary as if she were the only character in the book. And none of the time I spend thinking about her would appear in Mary's time, the time inside the story. And then listen to this. Lewis said, if you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must also picture the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the timeline one by one. We have to leave A behind before we get to B. And we can't reach C until we leave B behind. But God from above or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. Whoa. You think that's what it's like? Is, is God like an author of a book and we're characters? Is it true that God doesn't travel along the timeline of history like we do? That maybe he is with us here in the present, but he's also above and below and all around the timeline. Is that how it works? To be honest, I don't know. We're definitely in the realm of human opinion here, but I still believe it's a good thing to think about this. Thinking through this helps us understand how little we understand. The bottom line is we, we just can't comprehend the greatness of God. And the Bible says that in Psalm 145. Uh, this is one of King David's psalms. And, and David says, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness, no one can fathom. We could literally think about him all day, every day, trying to figure him out. And we will always fall woefully short. For instance, think about the Trinity. It's the idea that God is one, but he's also three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One and three at the same time. This is so confusing. Because uh, when you read through the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus did not think of himself as the Father or the Spirit. But the Bible also says very clearly that Jesus was not just human. He is fully God. So how do we make sense of this? Uh, at the end of the day... This is beyond our mental capacity. We, we just have to admit that God is very, very big, and we are very, very small. 
I got to thinking this week, I was wondering, what is the smallest living organism on earth? So I googled that, and I discovered a type of bacteria called Mycoplasma galliceptacum. Now these guys aren't just tiny, they are tiny, tiny. Scientists say they are the smallest life forms in existence. And how small are they? We're talking one-tenth of one micron. Now, maybe you're like me. Uh, a few days ago, I didn't know how big or small a micron was, so uh, let me break it down. First, you can think about a millimeter on a ruler. We, we kind of know about a millimeter, right? One micron is one one-thousandth of one millimeter. And you remember the size of our little bacteria? The Mycoplasma galliceptacum is just one-tenth of one micron in diameter. It's ridiculously small. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, I have a hypothetical scenario for you. What if we took one of these tiny, super tiny, single-celled organisms, and we said, hey, buddy, can you tell us everything you know about human beings? Could you describe people for us? This little guy's not going to do very well, is he? For one thing, he can't talk. But for another thing, he has no way to understand the human mind, the, the, the human body, human accomplishments. He's never seen Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel. He can't explain how we put a man on the moon. He has no concept of sports or cooking or friendship or falling in love. All these things are completely beyond him. Now bring this up because I think it's a, it's a good illustration of the distance between us and God. In Isaiah 55 verse 8, God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Whatever ideas we have about God, our picture is always inadequate, vastly inadequate. We are nowhere near his level. And if you're feeling small right now, that's actually very appropriate. However, don't let your smallness make you feel worthless. Because God himself has declared that you have great worth and great value. He gave us that value when he created us in his image. He put a little of himself in each one of us. That's another mind-blowing concept, but we'll save that for another day because we're not focusing on us here. We're focusing on him. So in the time we have left, I want to make a short list of God's attributes based on what we see in Scripture. This won't be a comprehensive list, but it'll give us a basic summary of what God says about himself in his word. We're going to take a whirlwind tour through the Bible and see what we can find. The first attribute is something we already alluded to. God is eternal. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what do we learn here? First, God is king. 
Not just a king. He is the king. He rules over everyone and everything. He has ultimate power and ultimate authority. When was he crowned king? We have no way of knowing that, do we? Because that happened before time began. God is immortal. He will never stop being king. He will never die. He's also invisible. You know, in this world, everything that's visible is only temporary. If you can see it, it's not going to last. But God is invisible and eternal. And nothing else, no one else compares with him. He is the only God. He deserves all honor and glory. And he will get the honor and glory he deserves. And that will happen forever and ever. Amen. Let's look at another one of God's attributes. You see this one throughout the Bible again and again. God is holy. Now, what do we mean by the word holy? Well, to say that God is holy means that he is set apart. But he's set apart in a very specific way. To say that God is holy, uh, that also refers to his total and complete purity. He's 100% good, 100% righteous. And God's holiness also has serious implications for us because we are not 100% righteous. Far from it. We are far from pure. In the Bible, it's always dramatic when an imperfect human comes in contact with a holy God. Isaiah is a good example of that. When God called Isaiah to be a prophet, he allowed Isaiah to get a glimpse of his glory. And the description is amazing. Check this out. Isaiah 6, verse 1, the prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, those are angels, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. That's a crazy picture, isn't it? God is sitting on his throne, and these angels are flying around, and they don't even want to look at him. They, they cover their faces with two of their six wings, and they cry out again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. God is perfectly set apart in his holiness. Now, if the angels are acting like this, what does that mean for our boy Isaiah? Well, Isaiah here demonstrates how we should respond to a holy God. He says, Woe to me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah knows that he has no business entering God's presence. Isaiah deserves to be annihilated in the white-hot holiness and purity of his presence. If you keep reading this passage, you see that God purifies Isaiah and he survives this encounter. But let's not miss the point here. 
we should approach God in reverence and awe and even fear. And that might seem a little off to some of us, but the Bible says it's appropriate to fear God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's important for us to remember this when we come together in worship. Through Jesus, we have permission to enter God's presence, but we shouldn't do that in a casual way. Let's look at our next attribute. God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. The prophet Jeremiah says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That's a big statement. Nothing is too hard for you. We talk about this. God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And that's kind of scary when you think about what God could do. I mean, he could destroy this world without even breaking a sweat. He could close his fingers and squish our planet like a bug. It's only by his grace that he hasn't done that. So we can be thankful for things that God has not done, but we should also be thankful for the many great things that he has done. The book of James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. So music, laughter, babies, pizza, all of these are great gifts from our Heavenly Father, including the blessing of life itself. God not only made us, He sustains us. This past Monday night, it was shocking and sobering to see DeMar Hamlin collapse and fall to the ground after a cardiac arrest. It was also very encouraging to see so many people in our country turn to God in prayer, realizing that we need him. And and I praise God that prayers were answered and tomorrow's doing better. And you know, sometimes when when things like this happen, we, we ask why. Why, God, would you allow something like this to happen? Someone so young. And It's okay to ask those questions. God can handle the why questions. But we should also see this as an opportunity to recognize that every heartbeat, it's not a right, it's a gift from God. The whole time we've been in this service, we've been receiving these gifts, one heartbeat after another, and we don't even think about it. God gives life. He sustains life. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. He's the only one like that. Okay, let's pick up the pace here. Scripture also tells us that God is all-knowing. And Hebrews 4.13 says it this way, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is covered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, in one sense, this is very cool. Because whatever you're going through right now, God sees it. He knows it. In another sense, though, this is intimidating, even terrifying. Because all of us, we can do a pretty good job of making other people think we are better than we are. Uh, We don't let others see the worst side of us. But that doesn't work with God. He sees it. He knows the worst thing you have ever done. He even sees your your thoughts, your darkest thoughts, the ones you would be horrified for anyone to know about. 
And what does God do with all of this knowledge? Well, that leads us to another one of his attributes. God is just. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says that God is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So this is another attribute with a positive side and a negative side, an upside and a downside. The positive here is that we long for a God who is fair and just. We long for an all-powerful, all-knowing God to bring justice to this messed up world. Make no mistake, sooner or later, God will right every wrong. But there's also the downside here. God's justice is directly connected with his wrath. Precisely because he is just, he hates wrongdoing and sin. Unfortunately, all of us have sinned, and that puts us directly in the path of God's wrath. In Romans 1.18, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. To an extent, we like the idea of a God who gives people what's coming to them until it's our turn. And I deserve to get my turn. You do too. And at this point in God's kingdom story... uh, It looks like we could have a very unhappy ending, except for one major, game-changing, wonderful truth. God is love. We see this in 1 John 1, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is so powerful. John doesn't say that God is loving John doesn't say that God loves certain people at certain times and certain places. No, he says God is love. He's the personification of love. So how does that work? Well, some people interpret it this way. They say, well, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I believe in a God of love. But then some of these people, they prefer the kind of God who says, oh, did you make a bad choice? I'm sure you didn't mean to do that. I'm sure it wasn't your fault. I I know that somebody hurt you, mistreated you, and you've been trying to cope with that ever since. And so you've made some mistakes along the way, but, you know, let's just pretend those things never happened. Let's sweep it under the rug. You could call this the all love, no wrath version of God. But if that's your version of God, you might as well worship a teddy bear. A teddy bear will not confront sin. A teddy bear will not hold people accountable or bring them to justice. But trust me, you don't want a God like that. You you want a God that gets angry at wrongdoing when people are hurt, when, when evil is done. You don't want a weak and toothless God, and thankfully, the one true God is anything but weak and toothless. But we need to pause right here and sort this out. We we need to get clarity on God's character. I want to share a chart that I used here several years ago. It's a pie chart. 
And, and right here, uh, there's only one piece of the pie. It's love. No wrath, just love. So is that an accurate picture of God's character? Well, uh, we read that God is love, but we also read Romans 1.18. God's wrath is very real. So how do we correct this chart? Maybe we make it 50-50. God is half love and half wrath. Does that work? Well, that doesn't seem right because the Bible does say that God is love, but nowhere does it say that God is wrath. So maybe we could adjust it like this and give love the bigger part of the pie, maybe split it 75%, 25%. That way we'd be a lot more likely to encounter the love side of God. Unfortunately, though, I don't see anywhere in the Bible that supports the 75-25 plan. Instead, I think we have to ditch the pie chart altogether. It's better to think of God's character in terms of a coin. We know that a coin has two sides, right? So with God, you do have the, the loving side of his character. It's a complete and consuming love. But then there's also the other side of the coin. Is the other side of the coin wrath? No, it's not wrath. It's holiness. Love on one side, holiness on the other side. That's his moral purity, perfect justice. So where does the wrath come in? Well, it works like this. God is holy and God is love. Wrath is an expression of his holiness. His love is expressed in grace. God must be true to his total nature, love and holiness. Because of his holiness and our sin, we deserve wrath. But because of his love, God found a way to offer us grace. This is the best news you could possibly hear. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I am forever grateful for this truth. God loves us despite the fact that we are so insignificant and small. God loves us despite the fact that we sinned against him. Remember the tiny bacteria I mentioned earlier? The mycoplasma? I didn't say this before, but certain types of mycoplasma can be very harmful to humans. It's connected to several types of cancer. This bacteria can be totally lethal. So imagine something here. Imagine that you have a big infection of mycoplasma all over your body. How would you feel about that? Sure, they're, they're going to harm you, but they are living creatures, right? So would you have compassion on them? Absolutely not, right? You're going to be taking antibiotics and doing whatever you can to get these suckers out of your system. You don't harbor something that's fighting against you. And the truth is, God could have had that same attitude with us. But for reasons that only he understands, God loves us. He loves us with, uh, it's a love that is powerful beyond anything we could ever hope for. Yeah, we deserve to face the wrath of God. 
And if we decide to pay the penalty for our own sins, then we'll spend eternity separated from him. We're headed for hell. But it doesn't have to be that way because the penalty has already been paid. Jesus paid for your sins, my sins, and the sins of the world when he went to the cross. And that was God's plan from the beginning. Paul said this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But we do have a choice here. We can reject God and choose hell instead. If you, if you refuse his offer of grace and salvation, he'll let you make that call. But that's not what God wants. He wants you to put your faith and trust in Jesus and receive that grace. The most high God wants you to spend forever with him. And the reality is, that's what all of us long for. Whether you know it or not, we long to be in God's presence, worshiping him for eternity. And if that doesn't sound appealing for us, it's, it's only because our tiny brains can't really conceive the reality. When God finally does away with time, at the end of time as we know it, we'll see the truth that has always been true. God is king forever. He is eternal. He is holy. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's perfectly just. God is love. He is the great I am. The roles we play in God's kingdom story are very small compared to him, but he invites us to play these roles. He invites us to join the chorus in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5.13, the apostle John writes these words, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The most high God is most worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Father, you are great and we are small, but I thank you for seeing us, for loving us, and for making a way for us to, to be with you forever. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us see things a little more from your perspective. I pray that you will give us a, a greater understanding of you, not, not just so we can know about you, but so we can know you pray for that to happen today and in the days, of he days ahead. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.